Welcome to the Microbial Secret Society, where David and I dive deep into the microbial realm and initiate you into the Microbial Secret Society. So enjoy our podcast. The first hour is always free, and the second hour is only available to members at microbialsecret.org. So thank you, and uh, let's begin. I bought a farm and a, and a home. So okay, oh, kind of yeah, kind of roots. Trans- yeah, set, setting up roots and um, trying to build a like a community and a conscious farm over here. So. Yeah. Well, we we recently moved uh, our farm uh, to the location we're at right now. Um, we're about. Uh, uh, it's about 120 miles uh, north and east of Seattle, um, right in the Cascades along the Skagit River. And um, we're doing a lot of observation too. You know, what what grows out here well, uh, what's already growing here, and, uh, you know, getting information from people who've lived here a long time um, on what they're growing, you know, just gathering information. Yeah. And and where you're at, it, it sounds like there's probably a lot of undisturbed forested areas, like at high elevations. You you can get into where, some where? beautiful old growth forest. Uh, the the we're 23 acres next to the river right now, and there's a uh, there's a section of forest that wasn't logged uh, in the last hundred years, and uh, as a result. Uh, you do see some of the old growth forest. Um, like we have a certain type of lichen that grows in old growth forest. It's out there. Just uh, you see distributions of uh, uh, plants in really high numbers. That's not typical unless you're in an old growth forest. So we have a little taste of that right next to us. Uh, but you can go out, you know, 10 miles from here and you can be in untouched forest, um, you know, so it's it's really close to us which is nice yeah it sounds like a great spot to collect microorganisms and to be able to tap into the indigenous wisdom that's right in your backyard yeah yeah and uh some of my friends uh uh who are part of the local tribe um you know they have a lot of knowledge that's shared uh amongst their families and uh, it's very sacred knowledge and oftentimes the medicines are for their families they don't share just with anybody Um, but recently i'd say in the last five years more people have um, uh, gathered and you know given more general medicinal knowledge of the plants how you know they were used uh, in their tribes and so you you know i've got books from the library of more recent uh, uses for medicinal plants that have been just hugely informational for me. Yeah, it's, it sounds like for a long time, a lot of that indigenous knowledge was kind of kept within the society of the family. And yeah. um, just until recently, it's starting to kind of come out about more ma- mainstream-ish about like, oh, these plants have a have a purpose and a benefit and we can tune into that and utilize them. Oh yeah. And uh, a lot of the families, you know, if they are sick, uh, they'll say, go back to eating the traditional foods to get better. And so there's more, uh, more focus uh, in our local tribes about getting indigenous foods grown, uh, going back to some of that knowledge of, um, and, and, uh, usage of our, our native plants, what that relationship is. It's a totally different viewpoint than most books about medicinal plants. It's more about a relationship. Yeah. More like a family connection to these plants. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that really, uh, hits home where you're talking about if you're not feeling well to like, um, start eating more from the land and kind of what's around you. And um, I've kind of been going through a little bit of a, just like kind of congestion a little bit. And um, the, yes, the other day 
kind of cut down like an, a really old, uh, just kind of like pruned an old avocado tree that was probably like, I don't know, 40 feet high or something. And wow. on the top of it was this, was this gigantic, like the top of it was kind of decomposing. It was so big. Um, but, the but the, the middles were, the middles like shooting out all these new shoots and stuff. So can just kind of chop it back and then it will, it will then bear fruit at a, at a, at a more manageable height. But at the top there was this gigantic mushroom that, Whoa. um, it kind of looked like, uh, it's like clear and it looked, it's kind of like a, almost like a noodle, but it's, it, it looks like a big sponge, like kind of like a big bath scrub sponge kind of, and, um, it's edible. So my friend wow. and I, we ate it and, um, it just felt like, like, it, I don't know, eating it, there was like information within it and it was almost like a high, but it wasn't like a psychoactive, like, um, trip or anything like that it was just this like energy or this mana or this life force that's like growing like kind of all around us and being able to like tap tap into that so oh yeah well i think you, you're paying attention to how food reacts with your body you know that's that's a huge mm-hmm. part of i think treating food as medicine is now you need a, a perspective that allows you to observe what happens when you eat a food or drink a tea and uh you know that's that's a relational um uh, connection with our food uh so i i value those you know those stories that people around here tell me uh well three two one and we're live welcome to the microbial secret society Aloha, welcome to another episode. Uh, and, so, and thank you for having me uh, uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, today we have a special guest, uh, Cody Lee Johansson. Yeah, I appreciate you guys uh, uh, connecting with me. I'm just excited to be part of the conversation and uh, add to this uh, conversation about the secret society. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And a, a little bit about Cody is, um, yeah, like you said, he's from the Pacific Northwest and raises dairy goats and utilizes the natural farming techniques to help transform and convert waste products, milk, and brewers' grains into something that is really beneficial. And can be utilized as um, yeah, a positive impact on the farm. And uh, yeah, Jake, do you have anything else about our guest? Well, Cody reached out to me a few weeks ago, as when we when we were mentioning we were looking for guests, and um, you know we started connecting, and then I was in Korea, and we got got this scheduled, and he sent me a whole list of some really interesting topics to dive into. So uh, I'm I'm actually looking forward to hearing more from him, and uh, you know, was uh, starting out with how about starting out with your uh, goats? Yeah, you you can probably hear the the young goats in the background. Uh, I, I was telling uh, telling you guys before we started here. There, this is noon around uh, our time, and uh, I just fed them, and uh, they're responsive to us because we bottle raise them. And uh, one of the benefits of bottle raising uh, your dairy goats is they're very friendly. You can, you can, uh, you know, walk around and they'll just follow you. Um, and, uh, but the other side of it is uh, if you go out near them, they, they want to have a conversation because, you know, we bring them the food as, as how we have it set up now. Uh, so they'll, they'll be in the background. I hope it's not <laughs> too distracting, but maybe it adds ambiance to it um and we we started raising dairy goats because uh uh when my wife and i uh had our kids uh starting with my oldest daughter now she was allergic to milk and we were trying to figure out why you know why do these allergies happen uh we don't have allergies to milk so why are they allergic to milk um and and we found a local dairy uh goat dairy that had raw milk 
that we could purchase and it was like $16 a gallon. And, uh, you know, we calculated, okay, $16 a gallon for the next 18 years times three. That's a lot of money. Uh, I don't think we can afford that. Maybe we raise our own goats for it uh, and figure out some way to make that work. Uh, so my wife did tons of research on caring for goats. You know, how do you raise them? How do they, uh, how do you do birthing? Um, you know how to do uh, a lot of the performance like milk testing so we can see their butter fat and protein she did tons of research and i was just really the the builder you know uh, we need a barn okay we'll build that we need some fences okay hay feeders okay um, and then um, uh, we gradually shifted more towards uh, me working on the farm to uh, yeah, raise these goats, take care of them, uh, and grow food. And the result was, you know, we were slowly getting more and more of our own food um, uh, that we didn't have to go out and buy. Uh, and our kids' allergies on goat milk, you know, that that went away. They can drink it uh, raw. Uh, and the biggest surprise was the community that happened out of raising goats. Um, uh, we just got connected with other people who raise goats and uh, the current uh, property that we're on right now uh, we're on this property farm sharing um, so taking care of the land and providing food for the owner and providing all of our winter's uh, wood we're we're here because of our goats so <laughs> What started out as kind of maybe more of a, a hobby with a, uh, you know, a little more interest uh, has really become our main thing. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just excited to be part of this journey with my wife and our family. Um, and it's connected me with natural farmers as well. Um, uh, I met Jason Padvorak. Uh, about three years ago uh, and you know he brought over I think uh, IMO2 and he's like here these are some indigenous microbes from uh, from my farm just down the road from you like you know add this to your water and uh, you know try try it with your plants and uh, I was like eh it's a little tiny jar it seems kind of weird but okay uh, and we covered uh, the tomatoes that I had applied the IMO uh, to and uh, those tomatoes didn't need as much water they were healthier uh, and so that perked my interest and I just started listening to uh, a lot of the different uh, podcasts that were out there uh, on Korean natural farming and zero budget natural farming and you know almost like out of the woodwork people who are talking about natural farming started uh, getting connected with me. So I, I feel like the, uh, the secret society almost initiated me through getting people connected who are interested in the same thing. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to be raising goats and, uh, and, and learning uh, more about where I'm at right now, what the microbes here are doing and, uh, and how, uh, people around me are getting more interested in growing with uh, with materials that are just right there. Like whether you're a gardener right there in your backyard or whether you're a dairy farmer or a market gardener, like uh, I, I think there's more people who want that initiation into uh, using indigenous microbes, using inputs at low cost. Uh, it's a, you know, people are interested in it. So I'm happy to be here talking about it. Well, righteous. Thank, thanks for sharing and uh, getting, getting to know you on, on that. Uh, I think, I think your mission there is, uh, is very much aligned with what, what we're doing here. I, I wanted to, you know, speaking of the synchronicity of the universe, I was just in Korea with uh, James Samudio from Texas and he was talking to me about how his wife had cancer and that she couldn't digest anything other than goat's milk, which apparently is wow. digestible in about 20 minutes. Yes. 
Yeah, cool. we drink raw goat's milk. Uh, you know, if I'm going to have a, a full day on the farm, you know, I'll just take a quart of goat's milk and drink that down. And uh, it's a nice kind of calm uh, uh, energy that, um, you know, I feel really good, feel like I can, you know, think well and operate, you know, well, it's not a big sugar boom. It's not, uh, you know, like a big heavy meal. It's just kind of smooth sailing. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, goat milk is, um, it's definitely uh, a, a very, I think our most valuable crop, I would say, <laughs> on our farm. Uh, we harvest it uh, twice a day when our goats are, uh, you know, fresh in milk. And then as they, uh, you know, as they uh, go on, you know, five or six months in milk, we switch to once a day milking, which allows us to do some more things. But I've, I've heard great stories, like you mentioned. Um, people who drink the raw milk from a goat, you know, have some benefits. Definitely. I, I've also heard that goat's milk is more similar to mother's milk than cow's milk is. And it's oh, definitely. And for that reason. Yeah. And there's, there's some, there's some, uh, some science, uh, you know, behind that. And in fact, uh, there are some, uh, uh, dairy cow herds that get genetically tested for this marker. It's like, I think it's called type A milk. Um, and, uh, and the human milk is a, a type A, if I'm, if I'm remembering this correctly. And goat milk is naturally type A. Uh, the, the thing with cow's milk is, depending on the lineage of your cow, uh, you can get this type, I don't know if it's, gosh, I'd have to go back and look at it let's just call it type B. Your cow's genetics can give you type B milk, which is an inverse of the milk protein from type A. And some people just can't handle that inverse protein. Uh, and they're, they can't digest it. It blocks uh, uh, a lot of different things in our digestion. But the cow's milk uh, that's type A is more similar to goat's milk, which is always type A. Goats don't have a you know, some are type A, some are type B. They're always type A. Um, and, uh, and human milk, uh, then is, is that type A? Although I think I've heard some people can, uh, their human milk can switch, uh, or be influenced. I don't, I don't know as much about that, but I do know that goat milk, uh, is very similar to human's milk for digestibility. Uh, can, can you tell us a bit about the KNF per, uh, preparations and solutions you've been making with your goat milk? Yeah, I, uh, I use uh, the goat milk to make all of my labs. And uh, I have done the rice uh, wash and, uh, you know, let that, it takes about, <laughs> it's pretty cold over here. So things take a little longer, <laughs> depending on the season. Um, but, you know, uh, two to three days, it's a nice, you know, bread or beer smell uh, in the in the rice wash. And then I just add that into uh, our goat's milk, raw goat's milk. Um, and then we let that sit and it, um, it does a nice separate uh, separation. And I actually eat the cheese curds uh, on those preparations. Um, and then we use our, uh, the labs, uh, I dilute it. And when I, you know, uh, uh, prepare, uh, our, our beds, um, you know, we use that, uh, you know, add it to my compost pile. Uh, I actually use the labs and, uh, and, uh, a mineral water and just drink that, uh, just as a kind of get me through the winter, um, uh, for, for that and then um yeah specifically with the goat milk i think the labs are probably our most useful uh preparation uh i have made a uh, uh a beer out of the labs by uh adding the um brown sugar to the uh the lab serum and uh i think i left it a little longer or something, or I didn't have the ratio right, but I smelled it one day. And I'm like, that smells like beer. <laughs> and 
And being a little experimentalist, I, I tried some. I'm like, that tastes like beer too. What the heck's going on? Uh, and it turned out uh, there's like sheep farmers in Ireland that make this special beer out of the sheep's milk doing a similar process. Uh, so I, just, I thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> So when when you said that you were adding like a mineral water to the lactobacillus, are, is that something? Is that a solution that you're creating as well? Uh, that's just a, a way for for me to uh, to digest the uh, uh, the labs in a you know enjoyable way. I guess just adding a little bit of labs to some uh, like a, a carbonated mineral water. Yeah almost like a tonic or something with no alcohol, mm-hmm. just, just as a way to, um, uh, I don't know, I, I think of it as like participating with it. Uh, can you, can you tell us a little bit more about how you've been uh, restoring your pastures with, with the goats? Yeah. Uh, the, the original pastures here were, um, uh, really just scraggly grasses. Uh, now they did have brome grass, which is a nice grazing grass, but it, its condition and vigor was almost stunted is, is what I'd say when we first got here. Um, and, and we had a lot of uh, forbs that were long taproot forbs that were growing. Um, and they're called cats here. And the interesting thing about those is you can use them for skin irritation. Um, and they have this really bright yellow flower and you can eat the flower. A lot of pioneers in the, the States used to bring the seeds with them where they went because they had so many medicinal uses. Um, but uh, the soil would dry out really fast and um, like you'd, midsummer it'd just be like brown, nothing. You know, it was just, they're eating dead grass. Uh, And so we started rotating our goats across the pasture. And um, we've been here just over a year now. And the first place that we put our goats has this lush green uh, grass. Uh, Some of it's native grass. Some of it's uh, grass that we seeded after the goats were on it. And I think it's a combination of their urine, uh, the manure, uh, the spent grain that we feed them from the local brewery. Um, uh, we do add uh, seaweed, which is also in their, the goat's food. Um, and then I've made uh, uh, some local uh, IMO from our forest, and I've you know splashed some of that out in the field. But really, I, I want the, the pasture to be the pasture IMO. So I'm almost like culturing IMO in, in place, uh, I think is what's happening. And, and the response, wherever the goats are for two to three weeks, just gets less green um, uh, pasture grass back. And so we, we move them to the next section um, kind of all throughout the year. Um, and uh, slowly by slowly, we're, we're building up this pasture uh, that seems to be more resilient to excess water and uh, hotter summers. And, um, and then it's something they can come back and graze on and kind of almost start this process, this flywheel process. You guys mentioned in a previous uh, podcast about, uh, what was it that the Torah, the Taurus? It's a, it's a number sequence that, uh, almost perpetuates itself and there's like three and six and nine. Yeah. I was talking about the rodent coil and rodent. The rodent coil. Yeah. That's a, uh, I think that the rodent coil, uh, I think the reason why I said Taurus is if you, look at uh like plasma structures like in in the universe uh like a a sun uh bursting it it creates these 
what looks like a rodent coil, or they call it a torus. And it's, it's this huge distribution of energy, but it's sustaining itself and in the process creating, you know, planets, galaxies, dust particles, electromagnetic uh, fields, and it perpetuates itself. And, and uh, you guys mentioned another episode like so above is also below. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, you know, I'm interested in what the universe is doing. And I'm also interested in what this micro organism universe is doing with all of these very small micronutrients, what's going on there. And uh, anytime I see a system that, acts as its own flywheel it catches my attention and the pasture restoration is very much like that um and so i you know we try to monitor what is it that our goats are eating okay well we don't feed them anything with corn and soy um and so a lot of what they're eating is lots of different types of seeds um and then obviously they poop and pee which is like its own IMO fermentation process and uh, then we make sure we have uh, some organic material like I don't know if you've ever been around goats but they're about the messiest eaters that you can imagine they spread alfalfa everywhere completely covered it it's like a super mulch system to raise goats uh, so that's on a pasture then protecting it uh, and uh and then it starts this flywheel process going and there's not much not a lot of people talk about it uh and so it's almost like a, its own secret society of goat people <laughs> <laughs> the gss yeah yeah uh but i i'm interested in and how do the goats integrate into this these natural farming ideas uh so well i'm really stoked to have you on as a guest and really appreciate you you being here and um yeah you you have a really inspiring story of um looking at something that kind of was like a cost like if we're spending this much amount of money on this thing like how how can it be more sustainable and then you're able to provide that for yourself and then utilize that as a source that was then able to sustain growth even further and um yeah you, you mentioned the the goat secret society um I, I just feel super connected to goats i don't i don't know what it is um um I, I had this one experience when like in the middle of the night like not too long ago like i was in a cabin in the jungle and this goat came up like this baby goat came up out of nowhere to the door and then I just picked it up and then like walked it back to like its home like a few miles down like about a half mile or so down and um yeah yeah my 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 astrology is uh very very heavy in in Capricorn which is you know symbolized by the goat um yeah it's in my my sun and my moon and it's in seven other other planets so it's very concentrated so um my, my question to you is what would you what advice or steps would you give to someone that wants to start stewarding goats and has like maybe the space to do it but yeah we feel really connected to this idea of uh uh having a relationship with uh the goats and uh, when we started raising goats, there there weren't um, there weren't a lot of opportunities to learn uh, hands on. Um, we we kind of had to create those opportunities for ourselves by finding other people who have goats and say, "Can we come, like, visit your farm and see how you do this raising goats and ask you questions?" And some people were really excited about it, and a lot of people were hesitant about it. Uh, but uh, our our advice is to go visit somebody who has goats um, and uh, you know ask ask some questions, be observant of you know um, of 
how they're interacting with their environment, you know, just watch them. You just watch goats and they'll, they'll tell you what they need. Uh, they need you to do. Uh, they don't around here. They don't like rain goats or at least our, our breed. I should say uh, we, we raise Nigerian dwarf goats, which is a, a smaller breed of goat. Uh, obviously it was originated in, in Africa and uh, they produce a milk that is higher butter fat than uh, all the other breeds of goats. So uh, there's a specific uh, uh, benefit to having smaller goats, especially if you have kids, uh, because they're not going to be as dangerous. Like my kids can go in to the goats pen, you know, they're not going to get knocked down <laughs> or stomped on or, uh, or that. Um, and, and so if you want to raise goats, um, you know, find out what you might want to do with goats. Do you want them for dairy? Um, well, if you do, uh, if you want really high quality, high butterfat milk um, for low feed costs, yeah, Nigerian dwarf goats might be what you want. If you want huge volumes of milk, maybe you want a different breed of goat. Um, if you want goats to, uh, you know, help maintain your shrubs, your trees, um, learn about goat uh, rumen health and how the goat breaks down trees and woody debris and what's poisonous for them. Uh, and then go visit people uh, who have goats. That's what, that's what we do. We, we open up our farm to anyone who wants to come visit um, and see goats and ask questions. And it's, yeah, it creates its own community from there. And it, you'll start with, you know, two goats and then you'll end up with three and then 16 and maybe someday you'll have 50 like we do. And then you'll be on a podcast uh, talking about goats. <laughs> And everybody you meet will be about goats. <laughs> wow, yeah. The advice to go and um, observe nature and see farms in the area that are already doing it. Um, yeah, my, my neighbor just down the road, he actually has, he has goats. So I could go talk to, talk to him about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they, they, they basically utilize the goats in like a, like an like a older growth kind of forest and then they they've kind of put a fence on and then the goats like kind of eat almost everything besides the like the native trees um yeah and then it, it kind of like cl clears it up and then it kind of turns into like a like a like a greener kind of like grass that's awesome uh, I, I'm always excited to see how goats integrate with a forest. Uh, we, we started raising goats in the middle of a forest. Uh, like I literally had to like cut trees and shrubs out to put in a fence so we could have the goats in. And uh, when we started rotating goats to the forest about a year later, uh, the forest area that they were in was just like you could walk through it everything was lush. We had a lot of ferns, um, salmon berry, everything came back in a, a very appealing, uh, manner. It wasn't overgrown anywhere. I, I was just impressed that the goats seemed to manage a forest. You know, that's exciting. Well, to hear I, about that. I have a question on a little bit more of the, um, the rotational idea because, I know basically if like, you know, you, if you leave goats unmanaged, they can be a plague and completely denude an area. And in my pastures, I have something where I'm not rotating my cows fast enough. And so they basically just degrade the land. But I, I'm, I'm curious, what is your rotational schedule and what paddock size do you have and what like you know, what fencing do you use and that, that type of thing for your kind of rotational tech here? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The nitty gritty, we, uh, on this property, it's, uh, run on solar. So we have three solar panels that, uh, feed a battery bank of 16, uh, batteries, deep cell batteries. And so we're able to draw off the, uh, solar, 
batteries to power uh, an electric netting. And the reason why we're able to use netting is we have a small breed of goat. Um, you know, there may be people who want larger breeds of goats that want to do netting, but um, um, we were able to utilize uh, uh, the netting that's electric uh, with small goats quite, quite effectively. Um, and so we have uh, three paddocks basically with electric netting and the electric netting is set up around all three paddocks at the same time. And in between each paddock, I just have a, uh, a gate um, and uh, we keep them in the summertime on a paddock size. Uh, it's about a uh, hundred feet long by 50, uh, well, 40 feet wide. Um, it's about 400 square feet. That seems like it's not very much, but when you run them on there for a week or two weeks, um, uh, they're able to, uh, you know, graze uh, the, the grass. We only let them graze down to about uh, four to six inches, depending on the time of the year before we move them. Anything lower than that, and then they start, uh, yeah, like you say, they'll, they'll kill the grass They'll eat it faster than it can regrow, and it causes problems with, you know, erosion and uh, all that. So we just we move them uh, to the next paddock, and we're constantly adding in uh, uh, alfalfa and tree branches from our forest that they can eat, and the spent grain from our uh, brewers. And the result is like we're building this flywheel of nutrients on the pasture, and then it has time to rest. Cool, cool. So, so you wrote, yeah, go, go David. So, so you said you have like a setup that's like a hundred by 40 and it's almost like there's like a outside fencing and then kind of like three little areas within it. And then you, do you just rotate that space every t few weeks? Uh, yeah, that's, uh, the, the setup, imagine like uh, one large rectangle, then divided into three equal rectangles within the large one. That setup uh -huh. is, good, uh -huh. is good for about two, four, six weeks. Um, so we leave that setup for six weeks. Uh, and then on that, that sixth week, I have another electro net fence that's a little bit larger because of our field shape. And we move all the goats into that larger uh, area. Uh, and then they're in that larger area uh, for two to three weeks. While they're in the larger area, though, I just go by and I pick up all my electric fence. And I move it on to the next, you know, rectangle, which is adjacent to the one that I, you know, just had set up. So that they're, they're covering this larger pasture in like small rectangle chunks at a time. Ah, and then like eventually they'll they'll create that open pasture that you would then rotate to yeah. like, another side. Okay. Yeah. Once yeah, what, yeah what, once we have good grazing, we can open up a larger area for them. Where do you know where goats actually like where they would live in nature? Like, what would their environment be? Like, where? Would, yeah. And like, how would they? So we have an interesting uh, relationship with other ruminants on our farm. Uh, we have Roosevelt elk. They're great big elk. Um, and they, uh, they, they come through this area and they prefer the forest and then the edge of the forest as it goes into the pasture. That's where they like. They'll go into graze and pastures as well. So they're, they're versatile, but they really like the edge. And so... Um, most goats would do fine at, in a forest, but if they can utilize the edge of the forest and uh, have access to, to pasture, I mean, they're, that's really their versatile zone. Um, the Nigerian dwarf goats, I mean, they were more uh, for African, um, uh, those plants and that climate, and I think that's why they're smaller. 
because of water issues. Um, but they, you know, they would be happy in a pasture so long as you could provide some sort of tree shrubs for them. I think they would do fine if they were only in a pasture. So you you mentioned uh, the bear and elk IMO on on here as a topic. What uh what about that? Yeah, that uh, that comes from observation. Um, we have the elk that they'll come through our forest and they'll leave their uh, elk droppings, which are almost identical to goat droppings, so like a little berry uh, type looking thing. And on my forest walks, I look at the elk droppings after about a week or so in the summer and it's like covered in this white fuzz like I see in a lot of the you know KNF uh, uh, IMO1 collection pictures and so um, I just take that and uh, add that into uh, I've added into compost I've added into a uh, 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 a solution more like a jadam solution that I was making a microbe solution um, and uh, just noticing wherever they drop their uh, droppings in our field things grow up really nice there um, and so I said okay well if they're gonna leave little droppings for me I'll, I'll utilize them and uh, grow more food so uh, they have something the next time they come around um, and, and similar with the uh, bear uh, we have salmon that run in our uh, our river, uh, which is colder than most other rivers in Washington. Uh, so we get more varieties of salmon that come up here. And then the bear eat the salmon. Like right now, it's their spawning time. So the salmon are coming back and they eat the salmon as they're spawning and dying. And then they bring all of the uh, nutrients from the ocean into the forest. And then they you know, poop it out basically all along the riverbank. And, uh, you know, historically we had salmon that were like 40 pounds, you know, now they're average five, five to six. Um, but you can imagine historically these 40 pound salmon being eaten by bears taken into the forest and the historical records of the trees around here, they were just enormous sized trees. And I think largely because the bear were bringing in those salmon uh, and eating them and digesting them and leaving them next to the trees. Um, so just imagine huge amounts of nutrients being deposited. Uh, and as, as long as other things that bears eat, it's like, it's like a walking, uh, I don't know, Jadam uh, uh, solution. <laughs> so uh, we, we apply that mainly for the, the trees. Uh, not, uh, we don't use uh, elk and bear IMO for like um, our annual, you know, crops, mainly for the trees. So the, the bears are almost doing an FAA process. And I yeah. know, I, I know, I know. One of the original, like you know, the the lesson of Thanksgiving and the the pilgrims is, uh, is you put a salmon under the, before you plant the the corn. Okay. Right. Wasn't wasn't that the the lesson of the Mayflower was like, all the all the pilgrims landed over there and they were famine and then the natives were like, yo, check it out. Put put the fish remains down in the hole then put a little bit of stone or something and, and then put your seeds and then you'll grow beautiful corn in this region. Yeah. So like this is the nat the natural hack that's happening in your region in, in nature and the natives noticed it and then they, you know, and then now we're recognizing that through like KNF specifically with like fish amino acid, right? Yeah. And we, uh, uh, we get uh, local fishermen's, uh, actually our, our local tribe, uh, they get a day uh, where they can go and harvest salmon and then they sell them. But a lot of people they sell them to don't want the uh, heads or the, the guts, so they'll fillet them. And I just go by and I say, hey, I'll, I'll pick up your bag of 
fish remains and uh, at the end of the day and I'll take them to my farm and grow food and I'd be happy to give you you know squash or something like that in in return and because um, otherwise I, you know a lot of times they just get dumped back in the river um, but we're able to source uh, fish products for free essentially um, to yeah get back into that cycle but if I find a, a local bear came through and chomped uh, salmon and left some droppings uh, I'll utilize that too yeah so yeah I think uh, it's it's a matter of uh, all, all that all that putting that fish waste just into the water into the river I don't think is the highest use of that material you know I, I feel like if we were able to you know, all the canneries in Alaska that bring in all this salmon, if each of those had like a, a FAA plantation there where all Holy the fish waste was put into um, sugar. And, and that's, that's one of the things, that what's one of the resources here in Hawaii that I'm trying to produce is, you know, enough Pono sugar so that we can bring that, like a shipload of that up to Alaska, up to these fisheries, and then you know, ship out drums of fish amino acid to folks. I mean, that wow. would be ideal in the KNF world of shifting our agriculture back to like, and, and then and then taking some of that FAA and mixing brews and putting it back into the ocean and treating it like, uh, you know, that because yeah. right now we just take from the ocean, right? But having right. this relationship where we actually make these solutions and like caretake it as much as you're going to like amend your soil, what about this idea of amending our ocean? Yeah. And our forests next to the ocean. And yeah. Yeah. It's like when the, when the boats come or whatever, or the canoes come, they're just like dumping like LAB and, you know, FAA and all these good things and into the ocean to like kind of offset offset the travel but I, I think like diving deeper it's like so like sugar grows really well in hawaii but like the native like the native people like it, is it sustainable to like produce sugar and like far farm off sugar if you can't yeah. grow it how do you get that much sugar into a larger system that's a great question uh, or how is nature doing it in your area that might be in a different form? Well, uh, the goats, uh, they can process the sugar out of uh, grasses. They can process, they love the sap of trees. Uh, uh -huh. we, have, we have Douglas fir that produces a ton of sap. And that's what the goats eat first off the branches. They have these little round uh, like nodules on the bark. And if you just poke one it like this time of year especially because it's sending the sap down to the roots and that's just sugar um and it has a bunch of other minerals in it as well but the goats they can take that sugar and then they process it through their urine and uh, uh through their droppings that's what feeds their rumen um and that, that i think that's how it's processed that much sugar is processed, you know, naturally, is by through through animals. That's absolutely incredible. So, it, what I what I'm understanding through this is like in the tropics we have a lot of sunlight, and so we can convert, you know, uh, sunlight into sugar via sugarcane via like these plants. But in the northwest, where it's much cooler the transformation of these things back in this cycle is more like through animals. Yeah. And, and tree material and, and grass. I mean, grass has a lot of sugar. Well, in it. What if you just had goats eating sugar cane? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Fat goats. Yeah. I, I guess too much, you know, just like anything too much of something could, you know, this. Yeah. A balance. Yeah. I, I'm growing a lot more sugarcane now for my pigs, actually. I'm oh. looking at that as one of the major sources of, you know, just general nutrition and minerals in addition to, you know, like a, a fairly diverse diet 
but sugarcane is one of the major components of it. Yeah. Cause then it's what they eat it in its raw form for you at the pigs do. I'll just, yeah, just basically one chop to make a stock and then, you know, chop it for handling and then just throw it in the cage and they chew it and they kind of juice it. And then they actually drop the bagasse, which is like the, you know, dried out sugarcane stock on the floor. And then I don't have to add bedding in there because right now I'm adding wood chips, but yeah. if I had more bagasse, they would, it would be like self-filling. And I bet any of the residual sugars on the sugar cane would help feed your bedding microbe population. Totally. It's one of the, it, it seems like a really suitable substrate for that system. Wow. So can you, what, what is, what's fueling your passion for protecting our soil? Uh, it's, it's my, my health insurance and my health insurance for, for my children growing up. Um, I, I think, uh, Entrusting my health to more natural systems um, and ensuring those natural systems are in place for my kids. Uh, you know, when they, you know, when they are choosing to uh, participate more around them in, in the world as they grow up, um, you know, you see that pattern out 10 generations and uh, you might have something a little bit more community and land based than. Uh, what's currently projected for uh, a lot of kids. Uh, I have to background that with, I came from the, uh, uh, the education uh, sector before I started farming. Uh, I taught elementary school. And um, when we started farming, I was amazed how many kids just didn't know where their food came from, didn't know that it was you know, particularly uh, could be more healthy for them depending on what type of food and how it was grown. Like it just, it's, it wasn't taught, uh, at least in my, uh, in my districts. And uh, I got a lot of pushback when I wanted to teach those things. Uh, you know, when I wanted to add on to the science curriculum about microbes in the soil and how plants get their food, because uh, that wasn't taught. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I think it comes down to the education. Um, that's where my passion is, is, is being part of a uh, education for anyone and everyone who wants to come visit or listen about how uh, our soil is important to our health and we are a part of the soil's uh, ability to grow everything around us that we need for animals, for ourselves, for our industry, as long as we understand a balance, which I think you guys touch on a lot with the secret society about you need this initiation, you need this education in order for this to work. And then you need to understand the balance. Uh, and uh, those ideas aren't as common in public education anymore, but one day they will be. So I used to teach at Kalana Anaole Elementary School. That's I, I taught, uh, started as an after-school program. And then by my fifth year, I was teaching the sixth grade um, agriculture course. And Oh, right on. Yeah, I, I feel like I really grew as a educator of children because they'll call you on your shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> especially sixth grade yeah so so you have to be this kind of person that inspires the kids versus someone who commands the kids and to connect yeah. at that level to you know and, and and but you know i was teaching natural farming and the kids loved it they they would they would be they would be mixing the fermented plants you know and they'd get sugar all over and they'd lick it and oh yeah yeah 
if I could have Korean natural farming and in, in my, you know, classroom every single day, kids would love it. Getting to eat something, oh, they would just, it would just be a, a, a wonderful addition, you know. Uh, I had several administrators just say that, oh, you can't make money doing that. So uh, you, you have to teach them to, you know, do this math and, and this uh, uh, curriculum here that will help them work at Microsoft and Google and Boeing. and Everything our district was doing was geared towards shipping these kids out of our community. Um, and uh, I said, what about having kids be part of this community like growing food or uh, using intermediate technology to repair things or build things for people like how come we don't have uh, internship programs to initiate kids in real jobs that are going to be needed in their rural community and uh, I always came back with the answer to me saying well we can't make money doing that so we have this money to get kids over here so we're going to focus on that. I said, I'm out. Sorry. I admire my colleagues for hanging in there and uh, teaching uh, uh, the kids despite the system being uh, uh, not geared towards our local community. Um, so I, I went more, uh, uh, you know, invite people to the farm and educate that way. Um, and maybe I can volunteer in a school, like like you're saying, do an after-school program about natural farming. We do have good after-school programs uh, in our local community. Um, that maybe they want a goat class or something. I'd love to do that. It'd be fun. Yeah. So I I um yeah my program I, I loved it the um yeah david you got you got any i know he's trying to get a educational center together at his place and uh yeah we we've been talking about the the fam program a bit um the fam program well i mean you're you're also talking about doing ch child education right i mean and, and have you been have you been doing any works on that well i've kind of just been caught like kind of thinking about it when when cody was talking about yeah programs for kids and the, the whole education system as a whole and um yeah, I'm expecting a child in February and oh, don't really don't believe in things. Yeah. And I, That's exciting. I, I don't want to put my, yeah. And I don't want to put my energy and faith into like, into like a, a system or something. So kind of being able to create that, like uh, a learning environment from, from nature because you know, Master Cho talks about how the plants are the teachers and where the students and the land is like the university. And yeah. Um, yeah, just being able to like create that space for more um, community building and environments for, for children to, to, to give them with like the positive skills that they would need to be a positive influence in their communities. So like, farming and building and you know all, all these things like skills that are needed to, to help others yeah i think your farm will be a great place to uh to to teach that i know we we raise uh our kids uh in a homeschool and environment but really it's it's more than just teaching them from our home like the farm becomes the university, the forest is the university, our local community, uh, neighbors who are mechanics become part of the teaching when they come over and help us fix a tractor or come over and show us how the plumbing on a well works. Uh, kids are there and they see that. Uh, and, you know, we, we walk by and we visit our neighbors and we grow some food for them and they, you know, help us uh, uh, in, in a variety of different ways. And so that's their education. Um, 
as well as we connect with other families who are raising their kids similarly, you know, and so they, you know, it's not like they, they never get to see other kids. They see plenty of other kids. And I, from a educator's perspective, someone who is seeing how kids behave in the education system, you know, I see kids who get their education from their community, from other farms. I see them as being uh, very well adjusted and adapted to, you know, any age group. My kids are great with younger kids and older kids. And um, I never saw that as much in the public schools unless those families had had, you know, extensive work in a community. Um, so, yeah, I think the community is a good place and a farm is a good place to, uh, you know, initiate our next generation into how, uh, how to be a, a more uh, stewarding part of, uh, of this. Yeah. Have you guys read uh, uh, Small is Beautiful by uh, Schumacher? No. No. Uh, uh, the, the owner of this uh, uh, property that we're on, uh, she recommended uh, the book to me. And, and one of the more popular chapters was called Buddhist Economics. And, uh, and I, think, I think it speaks volumes to um, how uh, farming, natural farming, uh, communities can really bring about uh, an, a sense of economy or connection to our planet that's, that's doable. It's, it takes people into account, not, uh, I don't know, corporations or tons of money or anything like that. It, it values people for their ability to make and teach each other things and work for a common, um, you know, food, for example. Uh, and uh, I, anyways, uh, I, I highly recommend uh, checking into Small is Beautiful. He has a lot of uh, almost prophetic uh, words uh, because it was written, I don't know, 60, between 60, 40 and 60 years ago. It was different parts, you know. Uh, and, and the biggest part is education. If you corrupt education, Everything is, is, is worse down the line. But if, if you hold education as being the most valuable part um, and you have the tools to make people uh, valuable because they can create or build or feed or help um, do something productive with their hands and get over their own self by being part of a community, then you have something that's sustainable. Well, that's, that's quite incredible. So, hey, um, we're about to get into our second hour here. And uh, I would, if, if you want to find out about Korea and, you know, maybe an Ask Me Anything little session as we move forward, um, fi finding out about, you know, I just saw some GCM, um, just hung out with a whole bunch of natural farmers in, in the Washington region. All, all kinds of things. So if we want to see um, along those lines, um, and then maybe you know we can always continue with more more goats and getting into the the wild world of Cody too. Oh man, no, actually, I I really want to know about what you guys uh, are doing over there. Uh, I felt like uh, you know I shared a little bit about our world, but I, I'm I'm really interested in, in what was happening in. Korea, what you're, because you've been out to, Eric, I know you've been out to uh, Washington to visit. I'm curious your take uh, on that. And uh, so I'd, I'd love to just hear uh, from you guys and hear from you, David, too, your thoughts on uh, on, on education and how your farm is going to be a part of your family. That's, honestly, I love talking with people about how farm is now part of their family. That That's really exciting. And it's, it's under, it's a story that's under told, uh, you know, you can't find books on, on that as much as you can on the nuts and bolts and nitty gritties. So I'm, I'm excited about the human story, you know, so I'd love to hear about it. 
Well, that's it for our free episode, so join us at www.microbialsecret.org for the full episode, and join the Microbial Secret Society. So uh, may the beneficial microbes be with you. Aloha.